0: Jimmy, Jimmy Corain, Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Jimmy Corain's an improv nerd. Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. We have two great sponsors of today's episode. Our first one is a great gift idea and that is the party game. Utter nonsense. Now, have you ever wondered what it's like to see your friend orgasm or take a poop? Reveal these mysteries and more with the Chicago born party game Utter Nonsense, currently available at Target stores nationwide. Check them out at utternonsense.com. That's utternonsense.com. And remember that giddy butterflies-in-your-stomach feeling when you first met improv? This Valentine's Day, fall in love all over again at the San Diego Improv Festival. And don't forget your keenies and trunks for the pool party. Skip the Chicago snow and come play, party, and learn in the sunshine with Susan Messing, Rachel Mason, and more. Submit your team or workshop by November 30th on the National Improv Network or call 619-306-6047. That's 619-306-6047. Also, check out my award-winning improv classes, The Art of Slow Comedy here in Chicago. Chicago Magazine said I'm one of the top five people in Chicago to study comedy with. And just in time for the holidays, don't forget to pick up my brand new book, The Inner Game of Improv, Five Steps to Getting Bigger in Your Career. It's a really short read, and it's only $3.99. You can get it at Amazon as an e-book or on my website as a PDF at jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. Guess what we got for you today? You guessed it, another great episode of Improv Nerd. Our guest today is Anthony LeBlanc. He's a performer, teacher, and director, best known for directing the current Second City ETC show here in Chicago, Soul Brother, Where Art Thou? He also performed and wrote for two main stage reviews at the Second City, and we talked to him about how the death of his brother at an early age inspired him, why one of his dreams was to work for NASA, and his take on race in comedy today. Before we get to the interview with Anthony, I had a really interesting conversation the other night. I went out to a restaurant, really nice restaurant, Joe's Stone Crab, with a group of friends, and I had a really nice uh, chop steak, by the way. And I'm seated next to this older guy. He's in his 70s. And I mentioned to him that I had just vi- visited my father, who was dying, as you know. It was a very uneventful conversation, by the way, or I would have brought it up in this podcast. And knowing that my dad is dying, the guy said, well, has he, sa- has he imparted any wisdom to you? And I said, no, and he said because when he was in his 20s, he said, he used to be a social worker, and he used to work in a hospital, and they would assign him the cases, the terminally ill cases, people that were definitely going to die, and he said the one thing he learned from people that were dying was they all wanted to impart some wisdom on him, and you know me, always trying to find the meaning of life, and how how to be more happy, and how to bring more joy into your life, and really trying to figure out why I'm here on this, this earth in the first place, I said, well, what did they say to you? What kind of wisdom did you you, you get from, from any of these? He remembers one guy telling him, and he'll, he'll never forget this. He said to him, don't worry about the big stuff. It's the small stuff that matters. So I said, well, what, what is the big stuff and what is the small stuff? And he said, the big stuff is high school graduation, college graduation, buying a new house, getting a job promotion. And the small stuff, the stuff that you really need to appreciate is watching a sunset or going on a walk or talking to a friend. And I thought when improv works for me, when I have a great show, that's exactly what happens. I am not worried about the bigger stuff, like what is this going to lead to? Am I getting the laughs? Am I being perceived as the funniest one out there? I am just focused on what is right in front of me. And all I have to do is just focus on my partner and listen and collect about 30 or 40 of those small moments In a row, and then I have a great show. But that's a lot easier said than done. You're gonna love this episode. Here it is, the Anthony LeBlanc episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Uh, Anthony! Uh, I am so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Okay, my pleasure. Now, you grew up in a small town uh, called Beaumont, Texas. Yes. And you were a very serious child. I was. Interested in science? Mm-hmm. You were into Star Trek?
1: Yes. Who love. was
0: your favorite character on Star
1: Trek? Uh, well, it's a toss-up, uh, depending on what part of my life. I love Data as far as Next Generation, and I love Spock as far as original, uh, and kind of a good balance of my life. Of uh, As a kid, I was always a, a non-emotional kid. I thought emotions got in the way of being productive. So it was that weird thing As I was in love with the robot that wanted to be human, but then also in love with the uh, Vulcan that wanted to be, you know, not his human side.
0: Um, and, and you said that you, you didn't, emotions, you didn't yeah. want to deal with him, and you, uh, you said you were closed off and pushed people away growing up. Yeah, a lot. How, did, it make, did it make it hard for people to be your friend?
1: No, because I was still a nice person. Okay. I mean, so I still was like, you know, like I'd be nice to people. But it was just that world of, I always looked at things from the logical mm-hmm. side. Uh, and so for me, like, the idea of being in a relationship or, or, or caring about people in a way that was, like, this weirdly unnatural way that wasn't like, I help you out because you're a fellow human, uh, versus like, I love you and I want to, you know, whatever, uh, that just got in the way of studying or getting things done.
0: Were you really driven, like a goal-driven kind of person? I was,
1: super, super, super much. Uh, And a lot of things I did were that way. So whether it be the sports I did or the, I did like academic challenge as a a kid. So I was constantly reading things, trying to get better at that. Um, So I spent a lot of my life, like always studying, I I hated missing school. I got perfect attendance a lot. Uh, When I had chickenpox, I got real upset that I couldn't go. But I did read the encyclopedia through. I think that's kind of a common thing. <laughs> no, 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 it's a, a common com- thing when you have chicken pox. Yeah, well, a common thing for people who do like, academic challenge. Like, it was a thing that the, what so, is the academic so it's like challenge? quiz bowl in the Midwest. Okay. So it's four kids who, uh, or three, depending on the format, where you're competing on a show, kind of like Jeopardy, but you're as a team and you're answering questions. So I was the history and science and weird facts person. Um, And in that thing all of us that were in that team we all had that experience like when we were younger We read through the encyclopedia and that wasn't weird (laughs) Now your brother passed away when Mm -hmm. you were in high school. Yes, Uh, how did that change your outlook? on Uh, life? Huge so for me and that was kind of the the kind of Big catalyst to my life turning around it took several years for it to eventually play out Uh, but my brother was always the outgoing person in my family. He was the very, he, he did political science. He was a, he was the, on captain debate team. He was super popular at high in high school. We were nine years apart, uh, and we went to the same high school. But pe- teachers still remembered him, and we're still like, "Oh, you're David's little brother," uh, and it, it was a big deal, um, you know, for me that. You know, throughout my life, I was always associated with him because I did look up to him. I I, I loved him. He's one of the only few people I did love. Uh, and when he passed away, um, I remember you know, kind of the two events that still kind of in my life that kind of motivate me is I don't celebrate my birthday, uh, and that's specifically attached to my brother. Did he uh, die on your birthday? He did not. But the last time, uh, so he uh, he had AIDS. Uh, and He died of a complication, uh, mm-hmm. which was he had Crohn's disease we didn't know until after mm-hmm. uh, that started to affect his body. Mm-hmm. So he had a pretty rapid degeneration from when we found out to when it actually he actually wound up uh, getting super ill. And I remember, um, I, uh, so this is a big secret, and now the internet will all know, uh, I was, I, my birthday's in March, uh, and I remember going for spring break to visit him. So it was like a couple of weeks before, uh, and he was fine. And then, and that was like February-ish for us, because the Mardi Gras world kind of lines up with that. Uh, And I remember then, you know, whenever he started to get ill, on my birthday near the end of March, um, my mom calling me uh, before going to school, because she's a nurse, and so she was in New Orleans with him uh, while he was in the hospital, uh, and saying, your brother wants to talk to you. Uh, And a week before, Uh, or a week and a half before, we had had a conversation about how he was going to get to possibly move home because my mom was a nurse, she could take care of him. He really wanted to learn to play the guitar because he started but didn't finish, and I played guitar. And it was a big thing. He wanted me to teach him all these things uh, and that we get to spend time together. Uh, And then on my birthday, when he called, um, he picked up that phone, and then I couldn't understand a word he was saying. Uh, And it was this weird thing of, like, hearing his voice but not making it out and then hearing him cry on the phone because he knew I couldn't understand what he was saying, and then my mom taking the phone from him and saying, your brother said he loves you and he want to tell you happy birthday, and I could hear him in the background crying. Uh, and that was the last time I ever heard his voice. Um, and um, so for me, that was, uh, I never saw my birthday ever again because of that. Um, but for me in my life, I, I then spent the rest of my time um, because the day that he died, I was very involved in school and things, and I was like, I gotta do this thing, I got do this thing. And I didn't go visit him the day he died, when my parents begged me to go. And I didn't understand, I think at the time, how, how far along he was. Uh, and um, I, I then, after that kind of played out the way it did, I spent, and have been spending the rest of my life, doing things that my brother would do. So I started to make choices in my life that would be things he would do, I wouldn't do. So um, I decided to go to school in New Orleans. Um, I decided to, um, to, to get involved, and when people asked me to do things, I said yes instead of no. Um, and I then started making these awesome choices, and this, my life changed when I went to college, all making choices that I think my brother would have done instead of my natural default. And
0: when you went to college, you were a double major in computer science and
1: physics. Yes. <laughs> what was your goal with these degrees? I, I wanted to work for NASA. Okay. That's what I wanted to do since I was a kid, since I was like five. That was, a, that was my thing. Do you remember
0: the first time when you were five that you... Yeah, worked?
1: I remember. I went through that weird phase where you we were like, dinosaurs are cool. Right. You know, like, these mummy things are cool. And then eventually, I kind of... And this is not a joke. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, at that time, uh, this was... I don't remember the exact date, uh, or ish, but it was uh, Ghostbusters that had come out. Mm-hmm. That was a movie, a big movie come out. And I remember seeing that with my brother and being like, that thing is cool. And all the sciency stuff they were saying. And, th- and then that kind of led me to get more into science, which then led me to this idea of space. Like, space is cool, and we'll go to space.
0: But junior year, you're an, an RA. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, some of the, the people on, on the floor mm-hmm. ask you to be a part of their improv show. Yeah. And it goes so well that, that
1: they asked you to join the school's sketch group. And it was actually an independent group, too. OK. Like it was so, uh, okay. it, that's kind of a weird thing. It was, it was, what was weird about it? Well, because we weren't associated with Loyola, but we were all Loyola students, so that caused a weird friction with the theater department and us. Uh, because we, we, we're students, we were supposed to be able to use facilities, but because they wanted control over us, they would then use that against us to the point where the present university had to say, you have to give them the space, you have a choice. Uh, and that kind of made this weird us versus the theater department world. We're the cool thing. That was kind of the was a lot of rehearsals,
0: like talking shit about the theater department.
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, well, I didn't because I wasn't in it. Right. Uh, but they, they were, you know, but they were definitely like, oh, they can't tell us what to do, and it was, it was, it was fun.
0: And at this point, what do you feel about making improv and comedy a career choice?
1: Uh, I love it, um, and it's one of those weird things where I, I tell people all the time that. For me, I never wanted to be famous. That wasn't a thing I cared about. I really did care about, though, the reason I love science so much was I wanted to be a part of something that altered or changed the way people think, thought, or behaved. So, you know, I I didn't want to be Oppenheimer, but I'd love to be the person who's working on the team that discovers this great thing that allows us to travel in space using nuclear power. Um, So, you know, for me, you know, the day I decided, like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, Um, was the night that my uh, first mainstay show opened. Uh, Which is how
0: many years? I had been doing
1: it since 2003 and that was 2008. So what
0: are you thinking when you're at I.O. and you're taking classes and you're getting on a team and then you get in touring company at Second City. What's going on in your your head the the, the five years as you're doing this? I
1: I was like this is a fun detour in my life. I was like this is a fun thing that I'm doing. like, I'm young, I'm gonna have this great story to tell my kids later. I think I'm always gonna do improv because it's gonna be a fun thing to do, but I was always like, I'm going back to school, I'm gonna get my master's degree. You know, I, I knew that at a certain point I had to like leave behind, like, I will not never go to space. I have left that track because as a scientist it takes 12 plus years, to, and you might never go. You might get, your thing might get picked, but you don't go yourself. So I had to be okay with that. Um, but it was still a detour, and a, and a fun, awesome, cool one, But. On the flip side, I think that's why I did so well, because this was always fun to me. It was always the thing that I was choosing to do, something that I wanted to do. It wasn't a thing that I was, uh, you know, I wasn't so wrapped up in the, like, I've got to make it or be on SNL or whatever. But if
0: people are listening to this podcast and they
1: see your trajectory, I
0: mean, it's like you audition for uh, a touring company at Second City and you Mm -hmm. get in. Yeah then you know, sh- shortly after that, uh, you are then on main stage. You do mm-hmm. two resident companies. Mm-hmm. And people are thinking, well,
1: could it be that easy? Um, I think yes and no. So I think that yes in the idea that if you, whatever you are doing, as long as you are driven to do it for the right reasons, if that makes sense, you're going to be successful in some kind of way whether it be it recognized by other people, or by yourself. Because I feel that even if no one ever picks you to do something, but you're doing it for the reason that you love it, it's what drives you, it's what fulfills you, you'll still get the rewards from it. But I think that if you're wrapped up in the other things, then you're gonna be more knocked down and hit by not getting the one part, and the other part isn't good enough for you. And so I think that it can be easy, as far as being, as far as success, in quotation marks. Uh, but but it definitely also is, I was lucky, there's a lot of luck that goes into it too, of how things played out. Uh, and then, I also think the driven nature I have. Like I, My sketch group in college, we were the only sketch group in New Orleans at the time. We, every summer, for the two summers I was there, we put up shows, and the second, like that last summer I was there, we put up an original show every week for eight weeks, where we worked Five days a week for about four to five hours a day to create those shows. And, there, and and that work ethic was always something I put into everything I did, whether it be track or school or my job. Uh, I, I'm a workaholic to that degree because I love it.
0: Um, and then you, you get to do two main stage reviews. Yes. Uh, America All Better and Taming of the Flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, how were those experiences?
1: They're, they're, both shows were very different, uh, but both... Fun in their own different ways. Uh, the first one was this weird world of like, what's happening to me? Uh, it's a crazy schedule. You only have one night off, um, and you have to kind of get you get used to that. Uh, but I toured and went right into Maine, so I didn't have that time to kind of turn off that brain of like this weird pattern. Um, but it also makes it hard to have relationships. So at the time, I was married. At the time. Uh, I'm not anymore, uh, but that was a large part of that, that schedule does not make it easy. Did that affect the marriage? It did, uh, because my, my ex-wife was not a improviser, so she always was you know, supportive to a degree of things, but then it was also hard, stressful to then add to that equation, I'm going to be gone for every night, and then the night that we do have off, I'm going to go coach these people or work on the other thing I'm trying to do. So I literally was like, I'm never home uh, when you are. Uh, so that then will eventually lead to just a hard lifestyle for people.
0: So that was the first show and Mick Napier directed?
1: Uh, it was Matt, Matt Hubby Matt Hubby yeah.
0: directed. Then the sh- second show, Mick Napier directed. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so very different. Like Matt is a person that I think he and I are very similar. Uh, he's very science-y and, and even the fun of when they were, he's kind of my mentor directing-wise. We kind of noticed that, like, oh, this thing that you do, I do as well. And I didn't get that from you; I just did it on my own. Like how we look at running orders. Well, or, Matt
0: is very like he he'll yes. he'll he'll do a scene down to the minute, right? Yes. yes. It's all timing, and yes. this goes here. It's mm-hmm. like it's like a math equation.
1: Yes. Yes. So I use spreadsheets <laughs> and things like that to like uh, and look at like weights, how may, how how many times people show up in a show and that kind of stuff. But also, there's a feel of like how the audience reacts. But I still also listening to the show. Will rank quotient-wise for me of like how successful something is or isn't.
0: Well, wait, wait, I don't get this.
1: So, so I'm So I spend so I, spend, <laughs> so, so I spend a lot of time like in a in a process uh, watching the audience or listening for the reaction that audience has. And so I will, on running orders, write down for myself like you know in a a, a one to five scale of how well the audience received it, and then looking at that. Mixed with my kind of gut reaction, I then will put together that as part of the equation of like how often are you in the show, uh, what, you know, how often you speak, how many laughs you get, like if you, you know, are you improv, is your, is your comedy heavy in this scene? So if you come on, you, you have the funniest line in the scene, that has a little bit more weight than someone who comes in and says just one support line. So I try and make sure everyone's fair or, is, or shown well in the show. And so I use a lot of that to then now, figure that out. Now,
0: during a, a rehearsal process, if yeah. I went back to your apartment, would mm-hmm. there be just charts on the walls? No, 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 no. And... It's
1: all on the computer, okay. so I, I okay. but, I, but, you, but you, can, you can see, I mean, like, for, even like my touring company for three years, you can actually, I actually have a document that has every spreadsheet from that tour co uh, for every major RO change that I made uh, with time of scene, how long each act was, how weighted people were in the show. Uh, And I try and get that number to an even number as even as I can make it.
0: Now, did you ever get shit from people like, oh, you are such, you know, you're so into science and so on and whatever? It's taking away the funny. Why can't we just be funny?
1: No, because in the end, it has to be funny. Like, that's the thing I will, and that's the thing in a process is easy to kind of be like, you were here, you heard them not laugh so you know that that scene did not work. That got a four, uh,
0: yeah. I just wanna let you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and th- that, that's something that I then translate it for them, of what that is, but you know that, of like, oh, we killed, or, or it didn't, like, it's the same language, it's just put in the way that you understand, right? Uh, so some people understand it through a feeling, some people understand it through a number, it's just all the same thing, we're all doing those quotients in our head, I just do it in a spreadsheet.
0: I'm I'm totally I'm totally intimidated because I was never good at math. So you'd be, I, if you had to direct me, I think well you probably translate it.
1: Yeah, I do, now. and they and they and I, I purposely they never see that like they never see that spreadsheet, mm-hmm. but you can feel it like you, you and that and that was you can feel the spreadsheet. You, you can, can feel the number. And and here you can actually, and that's the thing of like I think that being an actor first it helped me understand that, and then when I put that into then my way to see it. Like, I, I would never give someone an R.O. that I wouldn't do myself. And, I, and I, if I don't feel like I would want to be in that show and perform it, then I'm doing an awful job as a director. Because the, at least as a, an actor who's become a director.
0: Now, in science, uh, you know, it's clear you can change things. Mm-hmm, yes. How do you use directing to change things in the world?
1: Um, well, I, <laughs> and this is one of those things that I say a lot uh, and. It sounds super weirdly militant if you, you know, for the people at home that Kevin looked at the picture, I'm a black guy. Um, but uh, I feel like comedy is a weapon. Like, it, comedy is a weapon that you wield like a mighty sword that you, that you affect people with. And that's why it was drawn so much to Second City, because I feel that comedy allows you to get into someone. Uh, and get kind of behind their eyes and, and get into their brain and then all of a sudden sneak attack and then make them think about something very different. Uh, so like in my first main stage show, I was super happy that, you know, I got to do some really fun scenes, and <clears throat> two of them being one where I played corner West, where most audience members didn't know who that was at the time. I don't. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a professor uh, from Princeton University. Uh, and he is an African-American uh, gentleman who is also very hip in his speech. Uh, so he's able to relate to his students, but his whole thing is really pushing African-American studies, and, 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 and uh, he's an activist. Him and Tavis Smiley do a lot of things together. He also was in The Matrix is uh, one of the <laughs> council members that make fun of that in the show. But, I, but he, he was one of the people, like him, Tavis Smiley, Michael Dyson, who are also these kind of prominent black intellectuals who, at the time of the election, were questioning Obama and how black he was. And, and that was a thing that really upset me, and eventually he kind of came around, and, and Dyson did too, Tadis to Mali still got a little weird about it, and still is weird about it, um, but, and who he was for, uh, and so that scene really attacked that. But I had to work to get the audience to come to meet me, and this idea, of like, you have no clue this is, but I have to show you who this character is, and who, and why he's important, and his choice of using um, pop culture references to relate to people, uh, was a lot, made these fun jokes as I then talked about what I felt about this presidency. Uh, and then the other scene that I did that I still love this day is called "Interracial Love," where I stared down uh, a white woman in the audience and sang a song to her in a very Dave Matthews bandy. sounds very right. cute. So it's very right. like it was cute. Um, but the premise of it and that you hit it in the bridge is, I love you so much, I let your dad lynch me. Um, and so I then work backwards from that with, like, these soft, like, very, like, very, like very obvious, like, sex, like, jokes of, like, chocolate fountain and da-da-da-da. Uh, but then in the, you know, and then, like, I want to plow your snow and all these things. But then it ends in that bridge of hitting this world of, um, you know, right before it, like, You know, be my baby's mama. We'll make our own Obama. Laugh, laugh, laugh. But then the the middle is like, I know your dad doesn't want to date a guy like me because you, but you will because you want to make him angry. Uh, Without you, there is no hope. Uh, Oh no! um, uh, Without you, I'm lost. I see, I I see our love in that burning cross. Uh, Without you, there is no hope. For you, I would dangle from any rope. And then right after that, it's like interracial love. This coffee needs some cream. It is like ah, there's a little bit of that moment where like ah, oh, the audience is just oh my god, he just said that. Oh, coffee cream, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but by the time they leave, they hopefully get a little bit of the experience of me growing up in the South, really only dating white women my entire life, and that's having that's true. You only dated white women. Yeah, I, I've only, why do you think that was? Because I think a lot of it was culture. Of, I went to a mostly black school when I was until fourth grade, and then I switched to a mostly white school, uh, and I feel like I always fit into that world more, uh, as far as like a very assimil- I'm a very assimilated black man, uh, where you know the things I like are anime and you know, uh, uh, you know, Birkenstocky things uh, when in the '90s, uh, and you know, and it, but. And I had like I had like moments when I would run track against my old school where they'd be like call me like you're a traitor for going to the white school because it was you know it's still very you know a city that had a lot of that black folks was on this side of this, you know like most cities uh, but um, you know I I then found myself usually and the people I was attracted to and had more common with uh, more uh, white. Did you ever Girl. get shit for that? Oh, well, not so much from my, my friends. Mm-hmm. It was more so from like people like, I can't date you anymore because my dad doesn't like that. Uh, or the, one of the, actually, my first girlfriend, it was kind of amazing. Her dad um, was a photographer, and he lived in this town called Viter, which is near Boma, which is actually was on the news, huge in the 90s, because it it, they forced it to integrate. Uh, Because there weren't any black people that lived there, and they actually, when they tried to do some of that stuff, they were being forcibly pushing all of that out. So the state and federal government actually started to withhold um, interstate money of fixing until they did, Um, and it was a big thing. Oprah came; it was a whole thing there. You know, Montel Williams came into the show; he was hot in the '90s. Um, And um, not Montel Jordan, different dude. Um, This is how we do it versus the talk show. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember, uh, you know, my parents were afraid for me to date her because uh, she, she couldn't drive. She was younger than me uh, and couldn't drive yet. And so she, they were afraid of me driving to go and, and hang out with her. They were her because they didn't know what would happen to me. So I always had to either bring a friend or her, her family had to bring her to Beaumont to hang out with me. Uh, and eventually, that became too stressful, and it was kind of that. Then, kind of ended because of that. It was just a hard thing to do with our busy lives. Uh, but I remember uh, being over at her house, and um, her, uh, her dad's secretary, that his office was in his house, uh, made a comment offhand about um, us dating. And I remember uh, overhearing. Her dad firing that lady because of that, and it was such a big thing to me. And, and you know, uh, so after the fact of dating his daughter, I always would like check in with him and, and like be like, "Hey, how are you doing?" Because like, it was so, an amazing thing for this guy to uh, in this town go out of his way and uh, also kind of stand out in this place to then kind of rally against this attitude that people had.
0: So he fired somebody
1: because because of, because he, of that. Yeah, and it was kind of awesome to you know that he now when we talk about this and mm-hmm. we talk
0: about race and we talk about yes. race in the comedy, mm-hmm. you get so
1: animated. Yeah. I
0: mean and so passionate mm-hmm. about it. I do. What is it? What is it? and when you direct, you're like, bring stuff in that's gonna I don't want to don't I don't want to hear stuff that, that you think we need to be in the show. You need to bring in stuff that's passionate about
1: it. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was my rule for the main for this uh, ETC show is I don't care what it is, but you have to care about it. So if it's about, if it's race and, and uh, or it's about uh, gender inequality, bring that in. If it's, I hate remakes, if that's what you're all about, bring it in. But I didn't want people to bring in, you know, checkbox things. They're like, well, it's a second C show. I guess I better do a mayor thing. I guess I better do with this. Like, if you don't care about it, then why do we care? But I also wanted to push them to also really examine the things. So we, we had a real, you know, at points where I probably, you know, really pushed them super hard. Like even the last week of process, they were still bringing in new things. There's one or two things in that show that came in that last two weeks of process. Uh, and some of them, you know, things that really put that show together. Uh, and that was because I kept being like, you have to top the last thing you did. You have to beat that last thing. There's always something deeper that you can go to or hit. And I was also lucky to have a lot of people who were interested in that and, and, and really wanted to go after that. Like, they wanted to be in a show that said something. Uh, and in the end, it wasn't. It didn't care what they said as long as they were saying what they wanted to say. Now, how do you do that without being preachy? Uh, I think that it has to be authentic. It has to come from you. The audience has to also understand or feel that it comes from you. Like, the interracial love song. Like, that even though it has a, a, a dangerous aspect to it, it feels like that is this person is, who's doing it, it is a part of them. But because that comes
0: out of your experience of dating yes. white women. Yes. I mean, and, yeah, and living in
1: a white culture, so yeah.
0: you're more comfortable with somebody who d- wouldn't have had that experience.
1: Yes. And, and I think there are a lot of scenes in the show that push that envelope. And I, I don't want to give way too many things from said show, but uh, if you go see it, but there's so many aspects of it where you will hit, um, you know, moments where, and I, this kind of the analogy we started of talk about, there's a, a, you know, it has a, a movie kind of feel to it a little bit, like a, a, an action movie feel. And this, you got to talk about a journey through danger is what we kind of talked a lot about when we kind of define the theme. Uh, and it was the idea that every scene is like a loaded gun on stage that we're playing with and that might go off or might not, but that tension is what's going to be interesting, whether it be uh, a scene where we have you know, the two uh, you know, black women playing black men talking about what it's like to be a black man in Chicago and, and how uh, that's such a dangerous thing. Uh, or uh, Scott Moorhead had a, and, and Carissa Brecker in this awesome scene where it's a whole thing about sex workers, and it's a thing that you, know, you just have not seen that done in a way that is that real but and also sometimes like uncomfortable but in a great way Uh, and we push that over and over again but also have fun things to also help balance that as well uh, in the show. Now when you were on main stage you Mm -hmm. were the
0: only black actor. I was. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now in in the cast you have now in the Mm -hmm. ETC show
1: you have two black actors. Yes.
0: Two female black actors. Yes,
1: and then at the time, one uh, Cuban man as well. Okay. Yeah. So what's the advantage
0: uh, versus what you experienced in main stage mm-hmm. and versus what you're directing at ETC in, in terms of discussing race? I think it's
1: three things happen. A, you have someone there that supports, understands you in a certain way that other people can't. Uh, just And, and, and the, the other cast members want to. It's just different, uh, it, it, like, like that shared experience of, of growing up as a minority uh, does affect a little bit of how you uh, see things, uh, and you start to then, as you pitch, you can play with that in a way that feels a little safer sometimes because you have the other person to play off of or with. I think the second thing that you have is that there's also, you can help show the difference because not you know, all black people are the same, right? It's like all white people are the same. Uh, so that is, you know, kind of the fun of showing that as it gets away from like being able to read a stereotype into something. You can see that difference. So, like for example, Sam and Edgar are two very different black men. And that comes out very clearly in how they perform, how they uh, what the things they're Sam Richardson, Richardson and, 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 Black and yeah. were on the main stage. Yeah, and that same thing happened with you know Rashawn Scott and and Lisa Beasley. Like they're they're very different experiences. Rashawn grew up in you know in the Washington uh, Washington State area uh, and had a very different life than Lisa, who grew up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun you know listening to Lisa talk about how I grew up as the majority of most of my life because she grew up in a mostly black city and went to a circle black college. Uh, And it wasn't until she started moving out of that and going to LA and stuff that she started to see that difference. Uh, And those experiences are so different, but then how people might treat you is very similar, and that's a cool thing to do. I think the third thing that it does is it also allows those other folks in the cast that want to say and do something have the ability to do that. So someone like... You know, Scott, Tim, uh, you know, Carissa, all three of them had things to say that if it was an all-white cast, you can't say it because then that's just weird. You have to find a weird workaround to say it. So it opens these doors of things you can do. What
0: about being a black director? Mm -hmm. What's the advantage of that?
1: Uh, I think, and I might be wrong in, in in every situation, but I feel that... Every time I've, I've directed a lot of minorities, I directed a lot of the, uh, quite a few of the outreach shows at, at Second City as well, um, or I have. I did like, altogether four of them, maybe five. Um, and uh, you're able to speak a language to those folks that hope, uh, empowers them, I feel, uh, and then helps them to be okay with, and I think also being an actor too, being able to say, this is how this felt for me. How does this feel for you? or I'm trying to set you up to succeed or I'm going to protect you if you really want to go here with this. Um, the, you know one specific scene in that show, it is, you know, there's a couple there's like two of them I feel that are super dangerous when it comes to race. give Give us just an example of one. I don't
0: want you to give the show away. But yeah,
1: yeah, I'll do the one that is a little bit more you can see versus one that's a more more of a surprise. but uh, there's a scene called Brothers where Rashawn and Lisa play two. I said they play two black men who have you know, you know come from the south side and have shown up now here in the north side to then talk to the all white audience. Um, so and they're talking to the audience. They're talking to the audience and they're getting uh, questions. they're Not getting questions, but they're they're talking okay. about what it's like to be a black man in Chicago. And in the midst of that, they do wind up using the N word, and that is something that you know when we were talking about it, we had a lot of discussion about that scene, the, the three of us, and, and as it was kind of coming together, and their reasoning for even choosing to be, you know, black men uh, was awesome, and talking through that of, you know, as a black woman, there's a little bit of a protection for a white audience because that black woman is kind of like the the person who's taking care of your kids and gives knowledge, right? Versus a black man is someone who is scary and you want to be afraid of. Um, so that they wanted to make sure that it was them as those black men, kind of going out and talking to this white audience about this. Uh, we had a lot of discussion just in how. Um, the characters developed of making sure that they're people that we know as real people. That's like, oh, that's like my uncle so and so, or that's like this person. But that one, Rashawn, wears like a fur coat and has a hat. Where and they have they have they're you know they're older, so they have canes, but they're not pimps. And that is and that is a big thing of really pushing that idea of you know they mention a little bit at the top that, you know, that they, one of them used to work at the radio station, this idea that these are this is what those guys at your work that are kind of safe or, or that you kind of see in that world, this is what they're like at home, and now they're gonna come and they're gonna tell you like it is, and they're gonna give it to you straight, and you have to deal with it, and that's what's gonna happen to you. Uh, and you have to listen to them because you can't dismiss them as caricatures, you can't dismiss them as these goofy characters they are people who are going to give you that experience. So you did you, things. how did you deal with the N-word? How did you come to peace with it? Uh, I, was, I was more than okay with it. And, and I think that, I think as long as it's used, anything, is, anything, anything is used uh, in a way that is going to um, force truth out of, the, out of that show, it is great. And so I, when it's done, it's not gratuitous. It's actually said twice in the show. Uh, Later in a rap, it gets said as well, but referencing a song. Uh, And uh, both times it's used, it is to great effect. It does get the desired reaction from the audience, and especially that, oh, and then when it gets then pushed to its kind of, this is why we used it, then it's that thing of like, you're, it's almost like that weird thing of like, you're right. uh, Because it's that whole world of it's a word, this idea of things that you can say and we can't. Just like there are things that white folks can say that we can't. And they kind of play with that into that uh, world of things. Like, uh, um, I am not want to give away all, the, all those jokes in there. Uh, back is not, you know, they're seen. But it does come around to that world of really playing with, you know, it ends on that, like, I can't breathe. Like, that, that idea of, like, that's something that white people can say and black people can't, right? Uh, and kind of landing on that moment of that, you know, dealing with that world of, you know, the things and the unrest going into that process that we all felt and doing it in this really cool, effective way where it's not just, we're preaching to you about this, it's an experiential thing that the audience then feels and then it kind of settles into and then you kind of, you bring them into this way where it's it's like, hey, you, you, you. It's more, I was pointing my finger at you. It's for the radio. Uh, um, and, but uh, but it is it's more of an experiential moment where you're in the middle of it, and I think that is always the best way to, to have that satire play out. Is if you can show versus tell, if you can have experience versus preaching, uh, you know it's going to be better if you go out into the community than learn about it in a book, right? So that's the same thing that has to happen on stage, you know.
0: And speaking of stage, we're going to improvise now. <laughs> All right, so. um let, we're going to take a suggestion, and mm-hmm. then w- we'll see how you break down the suggestion, and then we'll go and re- improvise. Awesome. All right? Uh, can we have, what do you like to usually take for a suggestion?
1: Uh, I'm, always, I'm always a fan of uh, either something like a personal question. So I would say, um, you know, my perfect Sunday is uh, watching a Saints game while eating Popeye's chicken. Uh, stereotypes. Uh, but uh, what, I would say, what's your idea of a perfect Sunday? Sunday. Going to the farmer's market and getting
0: a chicken pot pie. Ooh. Okay, so going to the farmer's market and getting a chicken pot pie was the suggestion. Now, what do you do with something like that?
1: Um, I, I would take it and, and hopefully find either a character or a location uh, out of it. So either a farmer's market or something that chicken pot pie might invoke to me.
0: What does chicken pot pie evoke to me? Uh,
1: for me, it makes me think of a uh, very quick Boston market <laughs> uh, world. Because uh, most of the chicken pot pies in my life has been at Boston Market. Uh, or, or like that, my, or something that's like quick. The idea of like quick food that's supposed to taste home cooked or down homey or like kind of stealing from southernness a little bit.
0: OK. Now, when I hear chicken pot pie, OK, uh, I think of like warm, uh, uh, gooey, mm-hmm. uh, and bits of chicken in there. That, that, that's the only thing that comes to my mind. So what do I do with something like that?
1: Uh, well, I think that if it's gooey uh, and warm, it seems like you would be in a mode, you probably create a character or something that might be very comforting. Okay. Uh, or someone who is um, also looking for comfort in things they're doing. Uh, I like how you thought the food, and it instantly brought you there. And I instantly went to an appropriation world a little bit. What world? An appropriation world. What is that? So I said, like, so I ended off with the idea of like southern-ish, mm-hmm. uh, like taking southern things. Appropriation is like we're gonna take this thing from this culture and then make it ours, right. whether it be like you know southern food or it be you know black music, uh, and then you make it like your own thing. it's, it's and I, I I tend to think that way. Okay, let's go. All right. Stanley. Stanley? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just just trying to decide if I should put all the pearl onions in or just, you know, leave them out. Because I I know you don't like onions. And I I, but it's that flavor you have to have in there. You know, it's not traditional if you don't put the onions in there. Do what you want to do. I just just want to make sure that this is the best last meal that you have. Don't worry about it. Whatever you do,
0: I'm sure, is going to be great.
1: This has to be perfect. You know, I want to, like, taste every bit of it, and then, you know, you'll never get to have this ever again. I know. I know. It's, It's just like... You know, if it's not perfect, then, you know, you don't have that lasting feeling. And then it's just like, it's all just ruined.
0: The most important thing is I'm here with you. That's, that's the
1: most important thing right now. I, Stop I, beating yourself up. Huh? Stop beating yourself so, up. So I have, I have a whole playlist set up. I know. I know. And, and we're going we're to have a couple of dances. Yes. And, and, then, yes. and then we'll just sit. And yes. Then, so I, I put some some John Mayer on there. I love John uh, Mayer. And, I uh, love him. I also put a little John Butler Trio. Don't
0: out. don't worry about it. Okay. I just, I just
1: wanted. I, I tried hey, to. Hey, hey, everything's
0: perfect. Yeah. Um.
1: Just relax. It's not you know every. It's not every day that you get to you know choose what your last day is going to be. I know
0: <laughs> that is delicious that is de- what is this this is five buck chuck this is amazing
1: <laughs> yeah I know it was you love when you we're in high school so. yeah you, you're just way too okay with this I know
0: <laughs> and this is it I know
1: You know, this is hard for me.
0: Yes, I do. <laughs> if there's anything I can do to make it easier for you. No, no. It's, it's why don't you sit down? No, it's, I'm going to do it's this. Not yes, it's not about yes. me. me. No, it's not about me. No, it's not about sit me. Sit down. I have eight hours left. Okay? Come on. I want to have a good time. I know. I know.
1: I know. It's been a long time since I've, you know... Did, you know, can I do something like this?
0: I hope you know when I go. I hope you just don't get depressed and sad. I hope you you, you do something with your life.
1: No, no, it, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. So, so we're having this, this party.
0: Yeah. And, and we, I said I didn't want anybody else, just me and you. Yeah, I know,
1: I know. You know um, I, never, I never really understood, you know, when I was younger... You know, my my pa, Ann, and my, 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 my grandparents, they, they always had, like, lalas. You know, it was, like, this big party that we had at, at church. And I just, I just never understood, like, was was dumb. It's just like, a dumb idea. It's, like, why are you celebrating the fact that you, you died? Like, someone's died. Someone has died. Why are you going to dance and party about that? Like, why are you eating food? Like, what, what the fuck's wrong with you?
0: Wow, you are taking this a lot harder than no. I thought. You really are. Look,
1: well, well,
0: well, I'm I'm I've not. been on this earth for 60 years. I, That's enough.
1: No, it's not. It's yes. never enough. Yes. It is never enough. Yes. It is never enough. There's always more things to do. There's always more things to figure out, more stuff to eat. There's more things to, to, to taste. Last year, I went to Spain. I had a great time. I
0: came back. The doctor said I only had three months to live. I'm like, hey, I could eat what I wanted.
1: Well, maybe if you didn't, you'd be around a little longer, you know? Are you going to miss me? Yeah, I'm going to miss you. OK. So that's, that's a weird question to ask. Well, you, know? you just, you why would I not
0: Why would I not miss you? Well, God, I don't I know. I love you. I love you, too. Why would I not miss you? Well, I, is this the first time I've heard you say uh, I'm, I'm I'm not going to miss you? I'm going to miss you.
1: We. It's just, if I say I miss you, then it means that it's it's happening. It is going to happen. I mean, but it it might not, right? There's, there's like a, a, there's all kinds of things that can happen in, in the universe, right? There's like there might be like a place where like you don't die. It's like it's, it's like it's, there's got to be like a, a thing. That, that 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 place that exists where like people just they don't die, right? Like if you can imagine it, it has to exist, right? Like, like it's like that whole thing. Like if you if you if you are, if you don't give up, then you won't die, right? It's like it's like it's your choice to like not give up on yourself, right? Like you, if you like believe that you can that you are gonna stay here, then you can stay here.
0: But there's a better place. See, the the place you're thinking about it's called heaven. And someday you'll join me up there. I'll just wait for you. <laughs> what if I'm not? You're not what? what? If I don't get there. Well, well if everybody get get there? gets. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> I know I'm getting there. I'm not worried about me. I'm not worried about you either. You're worrying too much. I'm the one look, I don't I'm going to heaven, right? Assumedly. Okay, I don't know what it's gonna be like. Shouldn't I be more upset than you? Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. But, but I'm I... not. You know why? Because I'm at peace with it <laughs> <coughs> I... <coughs> I think I might be going
1: no, no, quicker no, than no, I think. No, 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 no. <laughs> What? And I'm fine with that. I, I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with that. I don't, don't want to be here alone. You know, you don't imagine being alone. You do, but it's not the same is
0: happening. I feel I should have gotten you a gift or something. It's <laughs> stupid.
1: No, no, I, I got you. I got you a gift. Oh.
0: I wish you wouldn't have
1: gotten me a gift. It's, not, it's nothing big. Um, I just took all the concert t-shirts that we, uh, that we went to, um, um, I made a a blanket out of it. Um, oh my god, this is great. Yeah. It's
0: kind of like a shroud. You got the Aerosmith concert? Yeah. Grateful Dead? Yeah. Big Head Todd and the Monsters. I love that concert, yeah, that, was was so, so, that was great. Cool. Man, you were so high, I know. remember that? Yeah, that you was, were so freaking high. That was
1: the first time I ever dropped acid. I know, <laughs> <laughs> what did I say,
0: what did I say? How many tabs to take? One. And how many did you take? Three. Yeah. <laughs> you were like tripping for a whole week. <laughs> I remember visiting you at work, man, and you, you called me a unicorn, that was weird.
1: Hey, hey, unicorns are real. <laughs> You know what I mean?
0: Uh, hey, I got a couple hours. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> You'll have to find out for yourself. That was that was a great concert, man. Thanks. You're welcome. I, I don't want you to think that I'm, I don't appreciate this because I love this, but I want you to have this because where I'm going, I'm not going to need it. I
1: thought maybe you could, you know. Put it in the coffin. (laughs) And, like, drape it over you like like a ceremony or something like that.
0: I'm going to be cremated.
1: How are you going to get into heaven?
0: It's easier if you get cremated. You're lighter.
1: Uh, that was super fun. Yes. It, it got real.
0: Yes. Well, you, The thing I loved about it was my character, like I was taking the gooey thing, like nothing's going to bother him, and you fucking, you came and you brought, your, you brought your acting chops to it. Oh,
1: thank you very much. You know?
0: And I think that's what really, because I was like, oh, do I have to, I was struggling with like, should I meet his sincerity or should I just stay with my character? So I was struggling with that. You know?
1: yeah, and I always feel that in a scene like you know as long as you you know play that realistic choice or real for the scene or whatever that is uh, in that moment, then it's always gonna lead you somewhere. So like for me, whenever uh, <laughs> that idea that appropriation world that that pop trying to comfort someone, that was mm-hmm. the thing of like was comforting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but of the act of trying to make that thing comfortable for someone right. And so,
0: I was going like, okay, He's having a harder time than me. Yeah. I want to
1: make him feel good about me dying. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and which that, yes, and, that, and that's a little of that that thing too of like that. You know, I feel like in scenes a lot of times, depending on you don't want to force it, but depending on if there are real things in your life that would that you're that you as the actor know that can still be filtered to that character. Like, for example, uh, in in my area, like that Southeast Texas, Louisiana world, that is a real thing. Like, we LALAs are things that we do when what we die. We? So a la is a Zodico, uh celebration. So Zadokou is Cajun Creole music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but normally is more like Creole, uh, so black folk. Uh, and the big thing that happens is you have the funeral, but instead of having a... Um, you know, a wake or anything that kind of like or a, a morbid service, you have a party. And you have a big party to, and you eat food and you celebrate that person's life because they've moved on. And it's like a going home celebration. It gets used a lot. They're going home or celebrating that. So that's why even like New Orleans' the idea of like a first line, is slow to the funeral, to the, to the burial, but then when you're coming back, that second line is super happy and joyous because right. you're celebrating.
0: The things. other thing I was, wor- a couple things. One thing was,
1: was it funny enough? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, funny enough, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but I think the funnier the humor, I think, came out of those moments that we discovered going through those moments of real, or the fact that this, the natural stakes of you're dying and we know this But it wasn't an unnatural stakes, right? We didn't create unreal stakes other than what was the one. Well, I think we were
0: we took our time and we were making discoveries. Like there was one point where I was like, where I said I wanted to get you a gift. I'm like, I I don't know how to respond to what you just said to me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Just trust. Something's gonna come to you. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be funny, but there it felt like some sort of beat shift, like a like the the energy had changed. And I'm like, okay, you know. Uh, I didn't get you something. And then you took that and just mm-hmm. said, well, I got you something. And then we found the whole thing
1: with the concert the concerts, and yeah. the
0: history and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of things in, in that scene, which I think were super fun and delightful, uh, were uh, that that the choice that you made of being more okay with it than I was mm-hmm. was such a cool character choice because it it's that thing that we all wish we could be and you imbibed it in a fun way. Like, we Mm -hmm. all want to be okay with dying, but a lot of times we're not. And so it's interesting to see a character who is, who's made that piece. And it seemed like you had discovered that very early but you were trying to help my character discover it. And mm-hmm. I think as the actor, I knew that, that you had done that, but I do that my character hadn't figured that out yet.
0: On a bigger thing, how much the discussion that we had about your brother at
1: the top influenced oh, this absolutely. scene? Oh, absolutely. It, it definitely did, because it was, it was that, that thing was in my mind and comforting. Uh, and in that moment, I think it was when I was looking at that, just getting it perfect, um, and I looked at your face, and when you're kind of like, it's OK. like that, that in my brain triggered that thing that when people who are sick are like, it's OK. It's going to be fine. Uh, that instantly kind of brought me to that place. And it was like how you said it, mm-hmm. in, in a way.
0: All right, we're going to take some questions from right. the audience. Uh, that was uh, so much fun. Uh, if you could turn the lights on, as, uh, Sam. Great. Uh, uh, a question about something what we just did, or a question for Anthony?
1: Yeah. Uh, do people drink and smoke at that? Yes. Do people, I
0: gotta, do people drink and smoke at Lala? La? I just have to repeat Ooh, it because
1: of the podcast. Gotcha.
0: Do people drink and smoke in the Lala? La? Uh,
1: absolutely. And that's one of those really fun things. It, it, it is just kind of a real crazy, uh, and it goes late into the night. Uh, they don't, they don't have it as much anymore. As like younger people aren't as into it. Uh, I haven't s- been to one in forever since like grandparent world. Uh, for my dad, they, we didn't do that. Um, but um, but for my grandparents and stuff, that was definitely like. Was now you don't part. seem like a guy who drinks and smokes to and me. Nah, I don't smoke uh, mm-hmm. and I don't drink a, a lot. Uh, I drink every once in a while. I'm not What's your vice? To...
0: Video games?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Electronics. Okay. In general. And how how bad does the that get? Ooh, I, I got I got all the systems. I got okay. I got them all. <laughs> uh, I played them all. Uh, I sometimes will choose them over better things to do. Uh, but, or I was like, I got to get the new phone, I got the, you know, I got, you know an iPhone 6 Plus. The, so I'm, I'm very much into tech things. Great. Another question? Right here. How did you
0: start directing?
1: Uh, I started directing, um, I started coaching uh, improv teams. Uh, people started asking me uh, if I would uh, work with them. Uh, on their uh, shows and one of the things I, the science part of me, I'm, I think I'm very good at helping people discover forms that fit them. Uh, and that was actually like, I, 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 I um, coached the uh, improv of the K-Dids while they were in Chicago. Who are now uh, going, going on to the teacher show. Teacher and, and that stuff. And uh, the two years I was with them, the main reason why I started working with them uh, was that they wanted someone to help them with creating a form. And, and I helped them create a form that really fit who they were. Um, but... I got to that because when I started at Second City, the first rehearsal I went to, I saw this guy, Jim Carlson, who was a resident director. Right, he was director of the main, main stage. I saw him in a tour co-rehearsal running the thing. I was like, I want to do what that guy is doing. And I really enjoyed what that was of like, seeing the pieces put together. So then I started anytime I could taking on projects with people.
0: Great. Another question right over here. Are you working on any new projects or are you just focused on the ETC show?
1: The ETC show, for the most part, is done. So once it opens, it, it kinda, it's done. But right now I'm involved in the uh, permanent understudies that are going in, so we've had auditions for that, slash I have to go watch the show when people go in to make sure I protect the show uh, and, and, and make sure it's intact. So that does, right now, for the next you know, couple of weeks, is consuming some of my life because uh, Lisa Beasley uh, is about to have a baby. Uh, Rashawn Scott is in the main stage show. Uh, we have another person that just left to go to LA as well. So that, as well that are
0: those stage. still good paying jobs to get those directing jobs? They
1: are. I mean, you're not making
0: crazy money. I, the um, old days, it was like 10, it's probably 15 or 20. I well, would imagine.
1: when you coach is, is different versus being you know a on, resident director. It's right. more of a, a salary based right. on on the show run. Right. Uh, But I I probably make more of my money teaching Mm -hmm. uh, and directing kind of supplements that. And you say you love teaching. I love it. What do you love love about it? it? Uh, I I love helping people find their voice. I love seeing that discovery. I also, some of my favorite classes are youth and teen classes because it's awesome. Uh, I used to teach at-risk teens a lot, and I did improv with them. And it was amazing seeing these kids from Homeboat Park who were making these funny fairy tales but putting them in their neighborhood uh, and being able to, like, people have to listen to me and they have to listen to what I have to say and I have a lot to say about where I live. And that's such a cool thing to see play out and see people
0: discover Do you think it helps when you go into a neighborhood like that that you are African-American? It does. It does. And what's the advantage, you think? Uh,
1: Because they can see not only an example of a person who's doing it, so it's not just some, like, Person who's telling them not doing it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If a white uh, teacher comes, not that they can't teach and, and can't do just as great of a job of, of teaching, there is a little bit of that. Seeing yourself in that person and being able to aspire to that. It's the same reason why you know I love that we have diversity in the stages, whether it be gender or it be um, uh, race or any other things. Of you have you can see a person who's doing it, so you then it's not weird that that I want to do it as well. Where When you're the only person, it seems like an anomaly. And, and this is, I don't want to go too far off the, the world, but one of the things that uh, I talked about uh, recently with teachers was that when I got hired at Second City, um, it was weird because I never felt like I, when that happened, I got hired on my first audition. It was, a, it was kind of a fluky thing. Uh, you know, for you, this, that doesn't happen very often. But I also felt like maybe I didn't deserve it because I would hear people or overhear things, weirdly, of like, oh, Deserve black, it. Because you're black. That's why it happened. Or that's why those things are. How do you make peace with that? So this wonderful uh, gentleman, David Pompey, uh, kind of, when I actually had a moment where I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do this. David Pompey, who was, on, was on the on main the stage, a ma- stand-up,
0: very funny yeah, guy. Yeah, very funny
1: guy. And he was uh, my director for one of my outreach shows, one of the Second City Diversity and Outreach shows. And he... Um, he, he, I was at that moment, and I was like, "I've been doing this. This is cool." I, and I was still in understudy, I was like, "I gotta go back to my other life. Why am I doing this when people feel this way about?"
0: This? I want to go to NASA. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and and he and he said, and this is the thing I tell every uh, minority uh, student, whether it be uh, women or someone ethnic, whatever it might be, that um, when, every, when anybody says that to you, there's so many sorry, there are so many white males in this world. So if you're a white male, and you're just OK, um, you can fade into the obscurity of the other just OK white men. But if you are a minority in that group, you're going to stand out. So if you're bad, you're going to stand out. Or if you're mediocre, you're going to stand out. They're going to remember that mediocre black dude on stage. But if you're good, you're also going to stand out as well. So if you're here, you deserve to be here. And that's what he told me. And then that. I was like, okay, Uh, and I always tell that to folks who, because that you encounter that a lot, where people feel or they're made to feel sometimes that they're only there because of, oh, you're they have a you know yeah they had to have a a woman on the group right or they had to have a black guy there right? It's like no, like yes they should because that makes it a better show, but also you had to be good enough to get this job, so if you weren't good enough, you wouldn't have gotten it in the first place. Now. I mean,
0: improv is still pretty much a white guy's sport. Yes, would, would you agree? Yes. What? And, but diversity is—it's making progress. Mm-hmm. What? 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 What has has to happen to keep that to, to even go further? Do you think?
1: I think it's a, a mixture of um, that bringing this art form to other people, uh, and and I think that a lot of things that after school matters, a lot of things like that do. We. I've seen a lot of kids uh, come to Columbia or even come through our program uh, that are ASM kids who then wind up getting that that kind of bug because they're being taken to them by, uh, by different groups all over the city. Uh, and I think the other thing is it also has to be a little bit of more of an inclusive environment um, and the idea that um, there are shows and things that also are examples they can see that reflect that uh and it's always you see on television that same thing happens there's an influx of, of folks coming through probably when in living color was on tv that people were doing comedy or sketch that were that were probably when
0: you know, living color was a tv a show, TV show or shoe
1: popular, popular right? now right. key peel is doing that a lot, Right. where i am i am encountering more young Minorities who are seeing that show, trying to figure out what this is, looking up who Keegan and Jordan are, and then using that to then come. Just like there's that kind of effect of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. There's like uh, most of our classes in that cons- in our secondary conservatory skew more female than male, and, 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 and a lot of ones. That's huge progress and, than when I started. You know, I mean, huge progress. Not not, not everyone, but mm-hmm. the, but the, I've encountered over the last two years quite a few where usually the the it's like more women than men. And you think it's the Tina, Faye, Amy polar effect? Yeah, and I think the idea of like seeing people when you see people that are that you can aspire to or like you, uh, and they're doing that, it makes you feel okay and want to push that. And the more you and more you see that, the more those people will come. We got to wrap this up. Yes. I could talk for another three
0: hours about this because I, I I love talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go, we always ask our guests one last question, okay. and that is, what piece of, you're very serious about. It. Um, What one piece of
1: advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? Um, I would say um, find your voice and don't let anyone tell you that it isn't worth hearing. And what is the best way to find your voice? To start to really allow yourself to use your personal experience, uh, but then also examine who you are and why you're doing
0: what you do. Thank you so much for being our guest.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Oh my god, this was great.
0: (laughs) Anthony LeBlanc, everybody. And there you have it, another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Anthony LeBlanc. And I really appreciate his honesty, especially when he talked about how his brother's death inspired him. I'd also like to thank Stage 773 here in Chicago for hosting Improv Nerd Live, as well as my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick. And so professional, if it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. For more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes here in Chicago and workshops, the Artist of Comedy, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. As you know, we're taking over social media, so like our Improv Nerd Facebook page, then follow us at improv underscore nerd on Twitter, and go to our wonderful YouTube channel where you'll see clips from the live show, Improv Nerd Podcast. Also, we're lucky enough to be part of a podcast collective called FeralAudio.com, so check out all the innovative and hilarious podcasts on FeralAudio.com. I'd like to thank both our sponsors today, Utter Nonsense. The party game, which uh, for more information just go to utternonsense.com and the San Diego Improv Festival and call them at 619 306 6047 or go to the National Improv Network's website for more information. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember walk, don't run.
1: Let's say uh, Seinfeld was, was on an island yeah. and he was blowing <laughs> Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like?
0: <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you.